Thank you, Pam Badger. Until very recently, this talk was advertised simply as a Dharma talk, mainly because originally I didn't have much of an idea of what I was going to say. And in a way, having been working on it this last week, it's ended up as a bit of a promotion for the retreat I'm leading at Buddhafield in May. And I think this is because, you know, analysing myself a little bit, I think this is because ever since my recent solitary retreat, I've been so desperate for communication of any kind that uh, I'll do almost anything to get some attention. And for getting attention, what's especially good about Buddhafield is that the numbers are virtually unlimited. I mean, you can always put up a few more tents in any, any one space. You can always fit in a few more tents. So if the retreat attracts a uh, hundred or more, I'm sure we could manage it. And I think that would be great, you know, a hundred or two men, women. I don't know about angels, but last time I led something at Buddhafield, one of the most committed retreatants on that retreat was a dog called Brian. And I don't know if Buddhafield usually allow pets, especially not dogs, but Brian was given a place on this retreat because of the depth of his meditation practice. I know it's not easy to assess these things from the outside. Not, not in anyone at all. But Brian really was, he really was, uh, an exceptionally relaxed and peaceful person. I mean, he would sit, he really would sit hour after hour in the shrine tent with all of us, just quite still, radiating what appeared at least to be metta and wisdom. And anyway, I emailed Brian this week, so I hope that he's going to be able to attend this coming retreat. And as you'll have gathered from what I've said so far, Brian, in fact, Buddhafield itself, represents something very, very serious, something very profound even, because he represents nature the natural life, lived in the open air, on solid ground, by flowing waters, in the sun and in the rain as well, and under open skies. It represents the way the Buddha, Shakyamuni, lived for most of his life. In fact, the Buddha, as probably a lot of you know this, but the Buddha was born under a tree, he gained enlightenment under a tree and he passed away under a tree I don't know about you but I, I really like trees and as soon as I connected up with the Buddhafield community a few years ago I realised that I want to live like that myself and a little bit more recently when I had that opportunity to uh, take a long break from things and do a personal retreat I suddenly realised well I can do it like that I can do my retreat that way. Maybe in Britain it's not really advisable to live under a tree, especially at my age, but I could build a hut on a hill somewhere. So that's what I did. That's where I lived for, for 18 months, in fact. In fact, I still spend most of my time in that hut. I like so much living right in the midst of nature. Well, I think it's reasonable to ask why. 
What is in fact the advantage of living so close to the elements? After all, the elements of earth, water, fire and air are not necessarily so pleasant to live with. They're fine to look at. You know, it's lovely to drive through the mountains. Or we take a train to the seaside. Or watch a documentary about wildlife. But why live in it? In real life, the earth, I can tell you, the earth is stony, hard, or muddy and dirty. Water, as you know, it's wet. It's damp. Um, And in this country, it's cold. Why forsake one's carpets, hot running water, bathroom and mains electricity? Why go somewhere with just an earth toilet where water has to be carried in buckets and where the fire keeps going out? Well, if you've ever been away in the country or down by the sea or up in the mountains, you know why. I mean, nearly everyone these days lives in a highly artificial environment. There's a sense of well-being and beauty simply being where things are not man-made. Where at night you can look up and you just see the moon and the stars and instead of a, a ghastly electric glare. That's why. It seems to me that contact with nature in itself nourishes some kind of human need. I wonder if that's true though. I sort of think about this. Why should it matter how artificially we live? Why should it matter? I can't easily answer this. But I think meditation might help us understand it. Just doing meditation. Because meditation works, I think, by exposing our artificiality. And then somehow dissolving it. Through a process of awareness. It purifies us of our artificiality simply by our paying attention to our experience, as we were doing just now. And I think that's meditation in a nutshell, giving attention to experience. But the, the attention isn't just mental. The attention we give is also something we do with our heart. I think this is very important. The heart, what is the heart? You know, the heart is all about what we wish and hope for. It's about what we want. And what we want in meditation, I think, is to find the truth in some way. Find some, some kind of truth. So, looking at meditation in that way, meditation becomes something like a kind of prayer. Because in our heart, we want authenticity. It's because we badly need something real, something genuine. That's why we give our attention in meditation. And this very heartfelt attention, that is meditation, brings new awareness. Our awareness of ourselves, of others, of our our senses, and of the whole world is continually refreshed as we practice. And in the long term, after much practice and reflection, we come to what we could call a more philosophical awareness, a kind of sensitivity to reality itself, of the ultimate truth of the nature of existence.
And that's the beginning of wisdom. I think, obviously, it takes a long, long time for our wisdom to come to fruition. But still, I think, some of it starts sprouting in us right from the very beginning. So, just to summarise what I just said, we can say that on the Buddhist path, our artificiality gradually drops away and we become more natural and real. A meditation that's especially focused on this approach of nature is the meditation on the six elements. Earth, water, fire and air are known in all pagan traditions and they embrace everything we can possibly experience. And then for Buddhist tradition, experience is itself embraced by space and consciousness or awareness, two elements which in a sense are even more elemental. Meditation on these elements can bring us closer to an experience of our real nature. But we're not usually so closely in touch. Naturalness doesn't come as easily as we'd like. And it's partly due to our history. Here in Europe, at least, pagan or natural values were suppressed for centuries by authoritarian religion. And we're only just starting to see the damage that that has caused, let alone start to break free from it. Our our connection with nature can't actually be broken. But emotionally, we're so deeply involved, very often with authoritarianism, that it's hard to see much value in being more connected with nature. We can't really see the point very often. The only way is to experience natural reality for ourselves. It's an issue not of theory, but of practice. So I'm going to take you through this meditation on the six elements. Uh, I might digress a little on the way, right? So bear with me and be curious. You know, see if you can experience what I'm talking about. It's a practice that can be done any time at all. Sitting formally in meditation, it can be done in walking meditation, it can be done in working meditation. Okay, so for most people, the earth element is the easiest element to experience directly. Everyone's body has parts that are hard, firm and durable. Earth is our muscles and our bones, our fingernails and our toenails, our hair and our skin. And of course, it's everything out there that's solid as well. So when we do this practice, we try to get an increasing sense of that nature, that quality of earth that's everywhere. We can feel it bending and stretching as we breathe. We can feel it in the ground under our feet, in the chair we're sitting on. We can feel it in our homes and our kitchens and on roads and in cars and among fields and trees and up mountains. And finally, you can feel it, you can see it in the white cliffs as they run down to the golden sandy beach. And when we walk out from there, that golden sandy beach gets, it gets wetter. It gets gradually wetter and finally we're paddling and we finally arrived at the edge of a vast ocean. We've arrived at the element water. I I don't know about you, but for me, there's an enormous shift 
when we get to that point. Water isn't just a different element. The next on the list, element number two, it's another world. Water, water, see the water flow. It sparkles and it dances. There's a kind of magical touch that comes in. The quality of liquid is utterly different, isn't it, to that of earth. The dry, solid forms of earth are hard-edged and rigid by nature. Liquid things, you know, you're going to have to use your imaginations here. You know, liquid things are not shapeless, but their shapes always come from what contains them. Water runs down this channel and that channel. It forms into pools and puddles and it flows on and on, down and down and down until finally it reaches the ocean. And even in the ocean, the flow never stops. The ocean flows within itself. So the practice is to appreciate this. It's to get involved in the sensation, the world of water. Not just H2O, you understand, but the whole liquid dimension of things. Rain, oil, tea, soup, mud, porridge, everything that flows. And we ourselves, of course, carry wherever we go a whole range of liquid substances. You know, we always take, for example, for some reason, we always take along some urine. We always have lots of blood with us and plenty of saliva and digestive juices. We, we absolutely take all that for granted. And we hardly ever even think of them as they, they just carry on tirelessly, pumping around, doing their work, keeping us alive. We don't generally feel much in the way of gratitude. In fact, I think we tend to think of our bodily fluids as a little unclean or a little indelicate somehow, even to talk about. I think there's a definite taboo against mentioning our bodily fluids to others. Isn't that the case? And I think that that feeling that we have reveals some of the conditioning that we've inherited. The conditioning that draws us into an artificial way of life. But in this meditation, we start undoing all those rather anxious, fearful complexes that we have. And we start simply accepting the elements as they are. We enlarge our awareness to include them. We remember that the elements are simply what's there all the time and how truly odd it is that we find it so difficult to accept them. Yet, our oddness, we, we really do have that feeling of oddness. We really don't like to think, do we, of all that blood pumping around. Yet it never stops pumping. And so it seems to me that we need to find a way to befriend the elements. I, I know this is going to sound a bit peculiar, but my experience is that the elements will reciprocate our friendship somehow. And that isn't quite as bad as it sounds. I'm quite aware that the elements are not people, but they aren't things either. The elements are qualities, 
Qualities that never exist alone. The elements coexist. They're all together. They're all of a piece. Earth and water, for example, are always warm or cold. The earth of my bones and the water of my blood are warm. Now this is the fire element. The temperature of things like my bones and and your bones is governed by the presence of the sun, the ultimate source of all heat. When the sun isn't around, it gets cold. If there was no sun at all, there couldn't be life. I wonder if there's a limit to how hot or how cold things can get. I don't know. I suspect that the potential either way is infinite, which is quite a thought. Physical heat. Physical heat is important emotionally. If it's too hot, I feel oppressed. I feel dull. I can't do anything. I'm definitely a cold climate sort of person. I love snow and mountain air. That's me. And that's the way I notice this element. Fire, it's another world with its own particular associations, myths and images. So can we get into that world? Can we learn to experience the fire element all around? Understand how basic it is? And that's the practice. Experiencing it, relating to it, understanding it and learning from it. Personally, I find it's harder to engage with the fire element. In the days when we used to worship the sun, I think we were more in touch with the elemental aspect of fire. We used to rejoice in the fact that it just keeps coming up over the horizon, unfailingly, every morning. There's that that Rolf Harris song, isn't there? You know, with the didgeridoo. Sun arise. I can't do this Mahasukha thing, but sun arise every, every morning. Um, Actually, we don't really feel that. When the sun comes up, we don't feel grateful or secure, do we? I don't think so. Or maybe we do, deep down, but I think very, very few people feel very much about the sun. And very few people that I know actually even light a real fire to warm themselves. People just switch something on, and then it gets warm. And it, it stays warm until they switch it off. You know, that's our simple life, if you like. But behind that simple switch lies an enormous amount of complexity. And it comes, I think, at a price. Okay, the fourth element, that was fire. The fourth element is that of wind or air. These days I call this the wind element for for a couple of reasons. First, wind is what the word vayo actually means. Sanskrit, Pali, vayo, comes from vata, which is connected with the Latin ventus, and from there we get our English words like ventilation and vent. Vayo doesn't mean air in the usual sense of our atmosphere. It's air in the sense of wind. It's moving air. In fact, it's not the air, but the movement itself. Vayo is the element of motion. In Indo-Tibetan 
meditation, yoga and medicine systems, there's a great deal that's based on the notion of wind or the experience of moving energy inside the body. Obviously, you know, you've got the circulation of the blood, the digestion of food, etc. This movement is all vio, along with all the literal winds in the body, you know, the burps, the farts, and the rumbling intestines. That is also wind, of course. But there are subtler energies moving around as well. For example, there are the nervous energies that move in correspondence with our emotions, that are moving right now in correspondence with our emotions. And just for example, when we're aroused by hatred or craving, even very slightly, something physical happens in the body. And we can notice these physical changes. In recent years, I've learned that when my body heat starts rising in a certain kind of way, it's because I'm starting to feel oppressed somehow. Next thing, I start noticing that I'm feeling irritated or upset. But if I can notice that subtle sign, that subtle heat first, then I can say to myself, Whoa, Kamala Sheila, be careful. Protect yourself. Watch out you don't do something silly. And on my good days, when I can actually listen to my own advice, I can save myself some trouble. Usually at that stage, it's not hard to make an adjustment. For example, maybe I'm cooking or I'm doing some kind of task, but I'm feeling a bit impatient for some reason, and my mind is only half on the job. If I see the signs, the physical signs, it's quite obvious that if I just get more impatient, I'm just going to suffer. And seeing it, at catching it, if you like, at that stage... I can quite easily relax. It's when it goes past that stage and I've already got into an impatient, irritated mood that it's much more difficult to relax it. And for me, the transformation of emotion isn't just a case of avoiding causing trouble. It's also about staying with the Dharma, staying with reality itself. If I get too upset, and I can it's much harder to recall the Dharma. I just get stuck in that upset state. I know that in theory I should be able just to look straight into any mental state, even the most extreme negative state, and just see you know, that it's something conditioned, it's something empty, it's something which I simply don't need to get involved with. I should be able to see it, but it actually was never like that in the first place. And on a good day, that can be done. But it's still very difficult because I'm often so attached to my emotions and I forget the spaciousness of everything. And the practice which helps me create spaciousness is this recollection of the elements, including this vio datu, this element of movement, of continual ceaseless movement. The practice helps me to stay in touch in a friendly way with my real nature. In, in my meditation book, I wrote about the absent-minded professor sort of person who's always thinking and he forgets or she forgets the physical world around. And if I'm not careful, I get 
I get rather like that. I can get cut off from the nature in me. I need to stay aware of the wind element, which is so vast, it's so extensive, and so somehow multidimensional. And I've not told you the half of it, because as well as subtle physical energies, there is the movement of the mind, as it darts here and there. There's the movement of the mind within itself, in the form of thoughts and perceptions. And all that is also the vio, datu. But we'll, we'll come back to that later, because we actually still have two elements to go. So I hope you're staying with this and managing to connect with this in some way. Because the next element, the fifth element, is, of course, the element of space. Space being the great container of all things. Everything's in space. All this incredible diversity, all these amazing formations of earth, water, fire and wind. Every single thing, even movement, takes up its place in space. Each of us is occupying space. This room, these seats and these walls all fit perfectly, perfectly into their own specially shaped spaces. Each one of our in-breaths and our out-breaths is making a unique, unrepeatable shape in space. When we consider the whole of London, the whole of Britain, the whole planet, the sun and the moon, and the whole galaxy of forms, the stars, the whole universe, we see for a moment just how incredibly accommodating the space is in which everything is moving around. And it's more than just vast, right? Space is boundless. It's beyond all measure. There's no end to it. And that's such an extraordinary thought. It'd be an even more extraordinary reality to comprehend, if we could really comprehend it. But we can't actually comprehend anything infinite or boundless. All we can comprehend is the idea of boundlessness, and that's amazing enough. To really comprehend boundlessness... We'd have to be boundless ourselves, I think. We'd have to become completely enlightened. And of course, as we know, we can.